This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. The income inequality gap here in the United States is something that has been discussed on a variety of different levels. But the reasons why it has occurred and the overall impact may have been misdiagnosed. And that has led to a variety of policies which may have been ineffective and slowed growth here in the United States. That is the idea behind a new book by American Enterprise Institute scholar and author Edward Conard. Uh, The book is called The Upside of Inequality. And Edward joins us on the show right now. Edward, welcome. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. Great to have you. Uh, so this idea of, of the 1% and the 99%, uh, maybe some, some, uh, some failures along the way? Well, I uh, uh, provide explanations for why I think the 1% has been so successful and also why uh, the wages of the middle and working class have been slow relative to GDP growth. In the first case, um, uh, you, you, we live in a knowledge-based economy. It's not very capital-intensive anymore. You see companies, the most obvious ones, Google, Facebook, can can scale up to economy-wide success with very little need for capital. So the innovators who create those businesses uh, can capture a larger share of the value that they, that they create than the capital-intensive innovators in the past who had to share the value with a lot more, uh, share it more broadly with a lot more Investors. On the other side of the equation, uh, I argue that uh, because capital no longer constrains growth, that talent and and risk taking are now the constraints to growth, and that when you spread those constraints over more uh, workers, low skilled uh, immigrants, for example, you see uh, less supervision, uh, lower productivity growth, and as a result, lower lower wage growth. So then where have businesses failed in that process to to try and build up uh, the workforce in general? Yeah, I think when you think about uh, talented workers, they can do three different tasks. One is they can create innovation like an iPhone, for example, that grows the entire economy. They can become uh, doctors and lawyers who aren't really producing innovation as much as they're just keeping the gears moving. Or they can become supervisors of lesser skilled uh, labor, sometimes as entrepreneurs, although there's a lot of high-tech entrepreneurialism on the innovation side, where they try to organize hourly or less skillful workers to make them more productive, more effective in serving the needs of customers, and that will also drive wages up. If you look at the U.S. workforce, the statistics are actually quite shocking. About 25% of our workforce scores in the top third of uh, academic tests, about 45% score in the bottom third. So we have about uh, one high-skilled worker for every two uh, lower-skilled workers. In Germany, it's one-to-one. In Scandinavia, it's two-to-one. In Japan, it's uh, three-to-one. And so with the much less uh, high-scoring workers per low-scoring workers, we've been able to produce faster growth, higher median wages, uh, much faster uh, employment growth. The U.S. employment grew twice as fast as Germany and France, three times faster than Japan. So uh, our, our most talented workers in the United States are very scarce a resource, but because of our institutional capabilities like Silicon Valley, for example, our workers are at the high end of the wage scale are way more productive than the rest of the world's workers. But what we see is this emerging opportunity 
On the innovation side, we see high wages in the doctor and lawyer side because of the shortage. And so what we see is a shortage of people who are really willing to roll up their sleeves and put lower skill workers to, to, to work. And what you see is a huge, on top of that, is a huge influx of low-skill workers. We have 40 million foreign-born adults, yeah. 20 million native-born adult children, 60 million adults. Uh, 35 million of those are predominantly low-skilled uh, Hispanic uh, workers. And so what you see is we're, we're spreading our skilled workforce over more unskilled workforce. So then in, in going through your book, a couple of the things that kind of went through my head is that we need to look at this from a couple of different perspectives. One, and you do talk about the fact that education in general in this country needs a little bit of a rethink to 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 prepare kids for the careers afterwards. And I think we don't do that enough at times. But two, the people that are working for companies right now that have been valuable resources for a company over the last 20 years, but that position that they have been in may be phased out to be able to retrain them and bring them into another sector of the company. And I don't think that's being done enough. Yeah, so I'm I'm a little bit skeptical about retraining. I okay. do think if you've spent your whole life in a job and you're 50 years old and you lose your job, it's very difficult to get back to the same productivity level okay. and find a similar job and to get retrained at 50 to enjoy you know, five more years of, of high productivity. So I think we have to be very, uh, very sensitive to those workers. Okay. I do think in education, there's an awful lot of emphasis on math and science as everybody in the, at the top end of our of our test scores is going to go into science, very few actually go into science. They largely go into business. We don't really teach the business skills that are required to put your fellow man to work and to make him as productive as he can be and to serve customers as as effectively as we can. So I don't think we necessarily have a shortage of talent. I believe that we have a shortage of properly trained talent. Right. And then I, I do make an argument that we should have a lower corporate tax rate. Right. The lower, the better, I think, because entrepreneurialism is one way to grow the economy, but it's a very risky and tough road to hoe because very few people end up being successful. You want to draw the world's corporations, they're really high-quality, stable jobs for companies that have already been successful and have scaled to world scale. The more of those you can pull into the United States, the better. And then the last related recommendation I make is that we should just go out and recruit uh, uh, the highest skilled worker. So right. we have about a hundred, little more than a hundred million full-time workers. The top five percent is five million. Um, um, there's about th- seven billion non-Americans in the world. The top five percent would be 350 million. Half of them, we don't know who they are. Half, they're never going to move. Half are too young and too old. You get down to a pool of about 50 million. We issue a million green cards a year. So. If we went out and issued, say, a half a million green cards to top 5% workers in that 50 million person pool, we could radically shift the ratio of high to low skilled. And 5 million, we could potentially double the growth rate of the United States. And I don't know if there's synergy, one plus one's more than one, or we're fishing out a pool of opportunities and one plus one's less than one, but we could have a significant impact on our growth rate. And that's, I think, our best chance to grow. And we just we squandered that opportunity, and when you look forward, when baby boomers retire, the Congressional Budget Office expects uh, uh, government spending as a percentage of GDP to grow nine percentage points. Yeah. It's already state, local, and federal, 36 today. That would bring it to 45. You've already got debt at 75% of GDP, so you need much faster growth than we can get organically. 
And then you have to worry after you get done feeding all the baby boomers you know, that, <laughs> that, the, that the Chinese are waiting to compete with you right. once you get past that phase. And so you really need to conserve your resources for what could be an existential fight at the, at the end of this road. And so I just think we have to find a way to engineer much higher growth than we can possibly achieve uh, organically. So then, and then how do you think is the best way to go about that? And obviously, uh, the, the, the corporate tax uh, issue is one that uh, uh, obviously was a, a very important topic during the, uh, the presidential race. President Trump has talked about taking the corporate tax rate down to 15% from 33 or 35%, I think it is right now, uh, which obviously will potentially bring a lot of money back into this country, but also potentially will will prevent some companies from deciding that they want to leave this country, correct? Yes, I think, yeah, so I think that the right target to try to hit is 15%. Okay. I think if you look at a lot of high-tech companies, they basically have a 15% tax rate. Now, they're doing that by paying the 15% to Ireland instead of the United right. States. Right. And so we could bring a lot of tax revenue that's being paid offshore to, to lower this, this tax rate. We could bring that tax revenue back. I argue that we ought to offset, we ought to raise the personal capital gains rate back to the ordinary income level to, ought to, to try to neutralize as much of the lost revenue as we can. Right. And there's a reason for having a low capital gains rate. One of the reasons is because of the double taxation of taxes, both when they're earned by companies, corporations who pay the tax, and then when they're distributed to shareholders. If we could get the corporate tax down, there's less reason for a, a lower capital gains rate, but it's sort of like a consumption tax. If you pull the money out of a company and distribute it to the shareholders, you think of that kind of as income, as consumption. Right. If they really had investment opportunities, they would keep the money and, and reinvest it. And so I think you kind of get at that, and, and I think that's probably gets uh, pretty close to, I think, where you could get to optimally on taxes. Otherwise, I think if you don't cut spending... You can cut taxes yeah. and run at big deficits. It's not obvious to me that if I loan the government money or I pay them in taxes, and ultimately <laughs> in the future they're going to come back and raise my taxes to, to pay off my loan. So I really paid those taxes today, not in the future. I think people are kidding themselves on that. But We are joined by Edward uh, Connard. Uh, the book that he has written is called The Upside of Inequality. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON. 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. Uh, you talked about risk when we got started with this interview a few minutes ago. Uh, why is it, do you think, are, are, are the main reasons why people, corporations, you know, I think it runs kind of across the board right now, why they don't take more risk right now? Yeah, I think there's a, a variety of reasons for that. One of them is we have become an innovation-driven economy, yeah. and innovation is, is riskier uh, uh, than, than, than traditional investment. It hasn't really been funded by uh, uh, risk-averse savings debt, for example. We have no way to diversify all the risk and eliminate the diversified, uh, you know, to eliminate the, un, the undiversified risk, if you will, the, the investment-specific risk. And what you see is a large portion of our workforce is actually exposed to investment-specific risk because they're a manager at a company. Right. So I think part of it is they're dialing back in other ways to compensate for that increased risk. Part of it is, I think, that our financial system blew up. Uh, we recognize that banks are inherently unstable. We've made yep. the Fed less uh, effective than it was because of uh, politics. And so I think people look at that and say, I have to be a lot more cautious because of this risk I didn't see in 2007. And lastly, the trade deficit floods us with risk of our savings. We buy a car from 
Germany. Germany doesn't buy a product from us that employs our workers. They loan us the money back. We have to take the risk to borrow and spend that money. We did that through uh, 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 subprime mortgages, basically subprime consumption. We've shut that down. Companies are net cash flow positive, so on net they're contributing to risk-averse savings. They're not they're not really using them. Rich people never really bowed against their wealth and took more risk. They don't want to take more risk than just spending all the money, than spending or investing all the money that they earn. So even when housing prices went up, they didn't really borrow against the, the real estate and, and, and spend more or invest more. And so you don't really see other outlets. The other thing I think, as well as an innovation economy, you see most of these companies with large cash piles because, in part, they're worried that there's going to be disruptive technology and they want to swoop in and buy it so that they don't right. uh, so that it doesn't disrupt their business and so you see a lot of these tech companies holding a tremendous amount of cash because they can't put all of their resources they can't risk putting all of their resources into internal development and then they miss some innovation that disrupts their business if you look at Facebook for example you know really Instagram would have had a major uh, impact on Facebook, which is why Facebook bought it. Anybody who has right. kids knows this. And, and today, <laughs> Snapchat's going to have a major impact on Instagram. So, you know, you if you were Facebook, you want the whole chain from the picture you take and give to your friend to the picture you put in your storyline to the picture that you write a story about in your storyline. You want all three channels. You know, they're holding a lot of money to try to minimize the risk of disruption in this in this in this innovation age. Trust me, I have a 10-year-old daughter and I have two <laughs> 7-year-old twins. Uh, one already is involved in uh, in that level of social media, and I know the other two are going to be in the very near future. Yes. We are joined by Edward Connor. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. His book, The Upside of Inequality. So then, is it your expectation that, at least in the short term, depending on how the tax situation plays out, that we could potentially Potentially see even more M&A activity. Yeah, I, 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 uh, yes. If I was the government, I would be pretty cautious about that, right. about allowing it. I think a lot of M&A activity, and I, you know, I grew up as a partner at Bain Capital in the M&A business. Uh, a lot of it is aimed at reducing competition between um, uh, producers. What we've seen is a, a rise in corporate profitability. Probably some of that is reduced competition. Most of it, I think, really comes from a skewing towards the information technology sector and the fact that it has a zero cost to to scale up to economy wide success very little cost not zero but so, so the then economics where, are very favorable so then where are you would you fall on the AT&T Time Warner potential deal I'd be very skeptical and leery of it because I think it has unintended consequences that we just don't that we just don't understand. And okay. so, you know, what is the economic benefit that consumers are getting? What's the big compelling case to con- why consumers benefit from the combination of these two companies? It's I'm I'm, uh, I'm skeptical that there's a lot of value there. Where do you stand on on the potential reduction of regulation and, and obviously in part with the banking sector, uh, which has been a topic that has been brought up uh, quite often? And I say that you know obviously the recession is one thing, but still we're you know getting close to a decade out from the recession, and even though it's a little bit of a different level, you know we still have things like Wells Fargo going on, and there's a, obviously a, b- between the the general public and, and the banking industry, there's a a large level of distrust. It's a, it's a massive chasm right now. Uh, I, I yes, I agree all, with all of that. Um, I am, 
Uh, I don't actually quite really think about the places to wade in there. The first thing yeah. I'd say is is that uh, I think if you look at uh, the recent Larry Summers paper, it shows that we've put a lot of regulation on banking, and we haven't really reduced the inherent instability of the banking system. Okay. And there's two kinds of risks in banking, by the way. One is I make a bad loan, and you can't pay me back. We got to make sure that the banks suffer 100% of the cost of making bad loans. Otherwise, they'll make bad loans. We don't want to bail them out for that. Right. And it doesn't look like we really did. And the second is in this unstable equilibrium, which is, you know, you, you, if you leave the corn in the silo instead of eating and planting it, it slows down growth, it slows down wages, it increases unemployment. You want to get the corn out of the silo and either invest it or, or consume it, and that requires lending it and somebody else borrowing it and taking the risk of using it. But if the depositors run back to the silo, they're going to discover there's no corn in the silo by, 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 by uh, economic policy. And so you're either uh, at one point in the equilibrium, which is all the money's lent out and everything's stable, or everybody's running to get their corn out and there's really no corn there. You don't want banks to go bankrupt in a bank run, a panic bank run on banks. If you hold them responsible for that, they have to hold a lot of corn in the silos to be able to pay out the depositors when they want withdrawals. We look at Goldman Sachs, it was shorting mortgages, and yeah. it still couldn't pay withdrawals and basically would have gone bankrupt had it not uh, been for the Fed. And the Fed's actually our low-cost alternative for solving this problem, which is it can print money, let the depositors withdraw. When the panic subsides, the depositors put their money back in the banking system, and they burn the money, and we get on with it. it, it you know, the Fed guaranteed... $2.5 trillion. It made a profit, and it, I think it paid out 2 and a half, it, it guaranteed $15 trillion of short-term liabilities, 12 yeah. to $15 trillion. It paid out, it funded about $2.5 trillion of withdrawals, and it made a profit on the bailout when all was said and done. And that's even yeah. bailing out companies like GM, where, you know, a little riskier than than simply bailing out withdrawals. So I think we haven't managed banking regulation well, and that we've basically smothered credit to the middle class. What I said was, in my first book, you put equity in the banking system, you force the banking system to hold more equity, it will make the banking system more stable. But two things, two problems. One is, that equity came from somewhere, and if, if equity is a constraint to growth, which I argue in my second book, then it's a zero-sum game. You get less risk in the banking system, but you get more risk or less economic activity somewhere else. And second of all, the customer or the bank has to pay for that equity. It's no different than saying you have to put a bigger down payment down on your house. Right. You do that, middle and working class guys aren't going to own houses. And we've seen yep. a huge fall off because the credit is a lot more expensive because they got to cover the cost of the additional equity, which the most important equity in the banking system is the homeowner's down payment. That's the that's the, the capital that suffers the first layer of loss. And the concern ends up being with what we've seen play out over the last several years is that we're starting to develop a generation that doesn't want to own a home. They'd rather rent or, you know, for some that are just coming out of college, they'd rather go back and live with mom and dad for a while. Yeah, well, because I think credit is, is very expensive. And yeah. the last thing I'd say on, on regulation more broadly is that it's, we definitely are blanketing the economy with a complex layer of regulation. And that does consume resources that have to deal and figure out that regulation. So it will slow down growth. Some of that regulation, a lot of that regulation is good. It, it makes our economy better. That's why, we, that's why our good intentions put it in in the first place. But it does slow down growth, particularly when you have a financial crisis, you go into a recession, everybody withdraws from risk-taking, and then when they return back to the game, they discover new regulations and they say, I'm not going to be the guinea pig, I'm going to take a wait-and-see attitude, let somebody else push against that regulation and find 
opportunities in it before I step in. So you slow down risk-taking right at the time when you need it most. Right. So I probably wouldn't have put in as much regulation as the Obama administration did at the time that they did it. Well, Edward Conard is our guest. The Upside of Inequality is his book. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Janet Yellen is is speaking to Congress, and you you mentioned uh, the Fed. I find the Fed very interesting, you know, talking with Peter Conti Brown and, and a variety of people here at Penn that, that follow the Fed even closer than, than I do. But it's interesting to see what has happened in the course of the last, you know, six to seven years. Obviously, first Ben Bernanke and now, and now Janet Yellen. And now, you know, we've seen one uh, rate increase. Looks like we may see a second rate increase in December and maybe then another one turning, you know, fairly quickly around after that. How do you view the path that the Fed has? taken in trying to manage all of these issues, or especially over the last couple of years? So I think that the Fed pursued a policy to try to accelerate growth and risk-taking, which is uh, they increased the monetary base uh, fourfold. So we have, you know, $4 trillion, trillion dollars, uh, the, I'd have to look the number up, it's probably three-something at the moment. And yeah. my last book, I said, a couple things to remember. The Fed doesn't create savings. It doesn't create anything. It's just an accounting system. Right. So the fact that you change the accounting system, you can trick people into doing something that they might not have done. But generally what happens is the accounting's changing, and you're saying, well, that's risk. It may work against me, so I ought to be careful about that. Now, what they were trying to do is take the constraints off of credit by flooding the banking system with with money that could be lent. What I argued in my book was the constraint to growth is, is our capacity and willingness to take risk, our equity, and our properly trained talent. So I argue that the money was going to sit in the bank unused. It wouldn't create growth, and it wouldn't create inflation. It would sit there, and $2.5 trillion of excess reserves, those are bank deposits that have not been loaned out. All bank deposits end up at the Fed at the end of the day, but yeah. the Fed can keep track of you know whether they're being held as as reserve requirements against loans or whether they're just excess reserves, you have about $2.5 trillion, which just sits there because the Fed can't really persuade you to take risk. What it can do is be a break to risk-taking. So in expansion, it can tighten up credit, make credit expensive, and slow down the risk-taking so you don't get inflation, you don't overshoot the mark. But when you're unwilling to take risk, it can't persuade you to take risk. It can print a lot of money and make credit cheap, but credit would have been cheap anyway. Right. And so I always think that the Fed is much more of a price taker than the world thinks it is. It's not really a price maker. Yes, it sets overnight interest rates, but you have to believe that there's a lot of connection between the short run and the long run. And the only reason there would be a connection would be if they said, kind of on the Scott Sumner, I'm going to print money and I'm going to keep printing until you're absolutely convinced there's going to be a lot of inflation in the future, and right. then you're going to stop saving and you're going to start spending. But we've been, you know, and you might be doing a lot of damage in the future by doing that, but by threatening to, to tax and damage people in the future, you might be able to act in the present. What our Fed has done is said, don't worry, in the future, we're not going to hit you with inflation. We're going to unwind this. And so everyone's looked and said, well, the interest rate might be zero today on the short term rate, but over the long run, it's going to go back to normal. And therefore, there's a kind of a delinking between the short run and the long run. So even though it can set the price on short-term interest rates, it just doesn't, I don't think it has much effect in the long run. I right. think the real long run rate is the rate that the markets view. They view a lot of credit outstanding. They see trade deficits, which can expand. 
if the economy gets tight and flood the markets with more risk-averse savings, if, if the interest rate rises. So they don't see any reason why there should be high rates, and that's why we haven't, we haven't seen them. I think what, it's natural. What do you think is going to be the, the, the short-term view of, of the U.S. economy going forward? Because obviously a couple of the things that uh, President-elect Trump has talked about is that he believes he can uh, find ways to, to see 4% GDP growth uh, in, you know, in, the, in the relative near future for this country. And a lot of people, you know, when we saw 2.9% with the most recent report, obviously a lot of people were saying, oh, wow, that's, you know, that's fantastic. But then when you dig into it, you know, it it wasn't a broad-based growth. It was it was more focused around one or two things. Yeah, I think you, in order to grow faster, you have to reallocate your resources in a different way. And so, what is the most important resource? It's properly trained talent. It's, yeah. the, it's the guys that go to Wharton are the most valuable guys. And unless you reallocate them, so we have reallocated them, say, from finance to technology, it's probably a better use of our, our most important resource. We might be over-allocated to technology because you have this one in a you know, thousand lottery, and you don't, been, it's not capital intensive, so you can end up with a lot of money if you win the lottery. So we probably are over-allocating the talent there at right. the moment. Right. What you saw in the stock market, too, was that uh, as some of the other, after uh, President-elect Trump won, you saw some of the values of, of stocks and other industries rise, but you saw the tech sector fall. Why might you see the tech sector fall? Because you might see a reallocation of talent away from the tech sector to other places of the economy, which might benefit more from a Trump presidency. So you might see a shortage of properly trained, talented, talented people there. I feel that the last eight years, we've issued a million green cards a year, largely to low-skilled workers. We have squandered the single best opportunity for growth, and that is to go out and get a million ultra-high-skilled workers every yeah. year you know, and bring in another five million and double the potential growth rate. So I think it's achievable that way. I don't think it's going to be achieved I just, if we just cut the taxes but we don't change right. the government spending. That's going to have a small impact, not a large impact. If, if we really change the investment incentives by changing the corporate tax rate right. and encouraging people to move companies to move here, those will have a gradual compounding effect because workers work at companies like Google and Facebook yeah. better on the job training. They coalesce into uh, communities of experts, and those institutions make our workforce much more productive. Edward, thank you very much. The book is The Upside of Inequality. It's out now in bookstores and available online. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.